Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is episode three of season two. If you haven't heard the first two episodes of season two yet, go back and listen to those first. In episode one and two, we heard about Robert Courtney, a respected Kansas City pharmacist who was suspected of diluting chemotherapy IVs. In June of 2001, oncologist Dr. Verda Hunter tested a prescription of Taxol from Courtney's pharmacy, and it contained only one-third of the prescribed dose. She then notified the FBI, and the FBI conducted two sting operations, covertly purchasing chemotherapy IVs from Courtney's pharmacy and testing them. All of the tests came back subpotent. On August 13, 2001, the FBI raided Research Medical Tower Pharmacy and obtained a confession from Robert Courtney. This is Episode 3. This episode contains disturbing content, including conversations about cancer. Listener discretion advised. Pharmacy counters used to be on raised platforms— This was really common in the soda fountain era of pharmacy, when pharmacies were often independently owned and also functioned as retail shops. Standing on a raised platform, the pharmacist had a view of the entire store. Security cameras later made the raised platforms obsolete, but some pharmacies still have them. I just remember being like above everybody else. It was raised. So when you you kind of looked up at him and he looked down on everybody. This is an interview Kate did while in Kansas City. It's in a public place, so you can hear people talking in the background. Wow. I didn't know that about the, the pharmacy being like higher up. As I remember, it was raised. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was yeah, it was raised. And I just remember looking up and it was like he was looking down at everybody. That's what I remember of him. I can picture him to this day in his white coat looking down at, at, at his uh, patients. You could say that the added height gave Robert Courtney the appearance of authority, of competence. Perhaps it would even put customers at ease. But it also meant that when people came to get their prescriptions filled, they had to look up to him. He handed their prescriptions down. Robert Courtney stood up there on his platform like a king on a throne, and the customers were his subjects. For Courtney, yeah, the dilution was about making money. But it was also about power. He had this ultimate power over people— The power to provide life-saving medicine, or to withhold it. The power to give life, the power to take it away. From Cast Media, this is The Opportunist, a podcast about regular people who turn sinister simply by embracing opportunity. This is Season 2, Episode 3 of 4. I'm Hannah Smith. Two days after the raid on Research Medical Tower Pharmacy, Robert Courtney drove himself to the FBI headquarters in Kansas City and gave a Mirandized confession. The FBI had evidence of the dilution, and Courtney hoped that by cooperating, he could mitigate his punishment. He had told us in that confession that there were 34 people, 34 patients that had received the diluted medication and he identified them by name and identified the prescriptions that they had received from him. So we had that universe of evidence and that confession. Robert Courtney expected to be able to return home that very day. But at his initial hearing, U.S. Magistrate Judge Larson surprised everyone by mandating that Courtney be detained immediately until they could determine if he was a flight risk. Judge Larson said at that hearing, quote, 
I don't think I have ever had a case like this. If he is willing to commit and then admit to such conduct, I cannot imagine what else he may be capable of, end quote. Robert Courtney would later be denied bond. He was held in Leavenworth, Kansas, mostly in solitary confinement. A grand jury indicted him on 20 counts of tampering, adultering, and misbranding cancer-fighting drugs. If he was found guilty on all counts, he would face 196 years in prison. But after Courtney told us that he had done it to 34 people, the question in our minds was, okay, do you believe that? Is it really plausible? Courtney insisted that he never diluted anything before the year 2000. But Gene Porter wasn't convinced. First, Courtney had failed a lie detector test. And then, of course, there was the money. Let's talk about the money. After the raid on Research Medical Tower Pharmacy, the U.S. Attorney's Office issued subpoenas to obtain Courtney's financial records. And that's when we learned for the first time about the uh, size of his wealth. Do you amass a $17 million fortune by having only done this 34 times? Robert Courtney had amassed way more wealth than anyone suspected. And now part of the job became tracking down all that money. The morning that Courtney left his house to go to the FBI office, he gave his wife a satchel and told her, there's $168,000 in here in cash. Take this and give it to my dad. I don't know how many people you know that have $168,000 in cash laying around in their house, but uh, he did. Laura Courtney took the money and gave it to Courtney's dad, R.L., who then stashed it in the attic of one of Courtney's adult daughters. A period of months elapses, and the daughter finds that bag of cash in her attic. She didn't know about it. Not a clue. Finds it and learns through her grandfather why it was there, where it came from. And she said, we cannot keep this. This is, this is blood money. This is tainted money. This is wrong. As far as all of his money and assets, you know, did you get an idea if um, he was just amassing it and like hoarding it? Was he spending it and going into debt? You know, I heard someone, uh, and this is just an anecdote and total hearsay, but a na- previous neighbor of his said that they had heard stories of neighbors driving, getting home late at night at like 2 a.m. and seeing him, you know, digging in the yard and that he was hiding money, burying money, cash in his yard. Well, he certainly was maniacal in a lot of ways to include a maniacal obsession with accumulating wealth. Now, was he burying uh, uh, stuff in his yard? Quite frankly, I never heard that. I don't have any idea. But uh, was he in debt? Very little. He, He bought a condo for his father and paid cash for it. The money in Robert Courtney's case indicated that his hands were very dirty. The money would lead the FBI to conclude, even after Courtney's confession, that there were still more secrets, more lies. When in doubt, follow the money. He certainly gave all the appearances of being obsessed with wealth accumulation. You know, once you get obsessed with something and you're on that road, it's hard to to redirect Uh, And if you're insensitive and incapable of being sensitive to the impact of what you're doing and how it's uh, affecting other people, then it's just a matter of watching the balance sheet grow. There are a lot of rumors about Robert Courtney and his money. Rumors that he had so much cash he didn't know what to do with it. So he buried it in his yard, hid it in his house. One victim told me that after Courtney's house was sold, the new owners found thousands of dollars in the attic. 
Yeah, all of these houses are pretty big. They've all got like three-car garages. While in Kansas City, our producer Kate went to Robert Courtney's old neighborhood and found the house oh, is this it? he used to live in. Hello. Hi, do you live here? I do. The current owner invited Kate inside and agreed to answer some questions, but didn't want us to use her name. Yeah, so did neighbors talk to you about it at all when you moved in? Yeah, they, you know, our uh, neighbor right across the street here was friends with him and, you know, was here the day he was arrested and things like that. So, I mean, she just said his wife was super nice. She doesn't think she knew anything about it. And that was kind of the, you know, we heard rumors there was cash buried, but we've not found it. So (laughs) I was going to ask, I was going to (laughs) ask if you had ever heard that before. The house screams wealth, especially in a place like Kansas City. It's three stories with glass sculptures in the yard. The hedges are perfectly manicured. There was a Maserati in the driveway when Kate walked up. Very high ceilings. um, Big, beautiful glass doors at the front. And there's kind of like a winding staircase. But it's still Kansas City. The owner of the house politely answered a few questions and then told Kate, go ahead, take a look around. And then she walked out of the room leaving a stranger alone in her house. I can't help but say it. How trusting of her. I think the fact that the woman who owned it just let me come in, (laughs) answered questions, let me walk around, didn't even really have any questions about the actual podcast, kind of shows you, gives you a little bit of insight did I pause this? It gives you a little um, bit of insight about what Kansas City is like. Like, that was so friendly. Less than one month after the initial meeting between the FBI and Dr. Verda Hunter, Robert Courtney was caught. Sort of. In Kansas City tonight, prosecutors are calling it a nightmare, the terrible, painstaking task of trying to find cancer patients who may have received watered-down versions of life-saving chemotherapy drugs from a local pharmacist, who is, by the way, behind bars tonight as federal agents try to figure out just how much damage he may have done. If it was true that Courtney only diluted the medication for 34 patients over the past year, as he said he did— That would be a total of 124 individual prescriptions. The only problem was the money didn't add up. This is Melissa Osborne again. Say you had a bottle of Gymzar that, let's just, for example, cost $1,000, okay? And and the dosage for one patient requires two and a half bottles. But you take one bottle— and create four IV bags. Think of the money that you can make. Because, I mean, that one individual that should have been $2,500, and, you know, he may have only put a quarter of the dose. He may have only spent $250. So it can make a lot of money. One figure I read estimated Robert Courtney could make a profit of almost three grand per patient per chemotherapy treatment that he diluted. That's a lot of money. But still, it doesn't even come close to $19 million. Let's say he was making three grand profit per dilution, and let's say he diluted 124 prescriptions like he said he did. That means he would have made $372,000 in profit. Of course, he did own two pharmacies, but each of those were valued at about $100,000. So yeah, that doesn't come close to $19 million. That was a clear indicator to the FBI that his fraud must have been going on for much longer than he claimed. So now the, the ongoing dilemma is, what's our mission here? Is our mission to pummel this guy into oblivion? Or is our mission to address the necessity of letting people know whether they've been impacted by this or not. The FBI set up a hotline right after Robert Courtney was arrested and the news started to get out. And within one day, they had hundreds of calls from previous patients, from concerned family members and doctors. This is from a news segment on August 16th, 2001. 
At the FBI's Kansas City office today, agents check hotline calls, over 400 so far, from cancer patients worried they might have gotten the highly diluted drugs. Hello, you have reached the FBI FDA hotline. At this clinic, doctors frantically search their records, checking how many of their patients they gave two chemotherapy medicines, Taxol and Gemzar, that came from Tower Pharmacy. Preliminary count, more than 100. The calls kept coming. The FBI received over 3,000 voicemails in total. People calling to ask if their medication was diluted. Doctors who had used Courtney's pharmacy, they were trying to figure out which of their prescriptions had been tampered with and how to navigate the care plan for patients who were in the middle of chemotherapy treatments. The FBI followed up on every single voicemail with either an in-person or a phone interview. I remember so vividly, I had to call a man back, and he now lived in California. So I get him on the phone, and he tells me that his mother was a patient of Dr. Hunter, and she had passed away two years ago. And she, you know, went through all this chemo. He said that she really just didn't have the effects that they typically hear of, you know, losing the hair the nauseousness. He didn't necessarily know exactly what medications she was on, but it just didn't, you know, the the medicine didn't work. The man's mother had ovarian cancer, which is oftentimes not diagnosed until it's advanced. So even with treatment, the fatality rate is high. He starts crying on the phone and he says, do you know for sure my mother didn't get the medication? I was like, no, sir, I can't tell you. I can't tell you that. It's but what you tell me would almost seem like she did not get the right medicine, but I can't tell you for sure because there's no individual information on what was mixed or mixed incorrectly for each and every patient, but it sounds that way. And he says, oh my God, I'll never get over this. I mean, how do I ever come to closure? As the FBI answered these calls, they began to compile a list of hundreds more patients they suspected had also received diluted chemotherapy drugs. Patients who reported not having experienced any side effects during their treatment. And many family members of patients who had already passed away. At the end of every workday, the FBI team working this case participated in group debriefing sessions with a psychiatrist. And men, big burly guys, you know, who are, you know, gangs and doing search warrants and drug busts and all this stuff, you know, really tough, sitting there with tears coming down their eyes because it was so hard. And, you know, talking to these people and, you know, and everybody knows somebody that knows somebody that dealt with cancer. So it is very hard. Patients, doctors, family members, politicians, everyone wanted answers. What was diluted? How long had this been going on? Was my treatment compromised? According to James Kirkpatrick Davis, a journalist and author who wrote a book on the investigation, by August 23, 2001, the FBI had identified about 700 people who they believed had received diluted drugs from Courtney's pharmacy over the past five years. Many more than the 34 patients that Courtney confessed to but they couldn't be sure. There was no way to test people to find out what they had or hadn't received, and there was no paper trail of the dilution. Courtney didn't keep a record of that, or if he did, it was never found. Robert Courtney himself was the only one who knew the answers to all of these questions, but he wasn't talking. He had no reason to further incriminate himself. This is Prosecutor Gene Porter. And it became clear to all of us as we went through that process that at some point and at some level, we were going to need to get additional information from Courtney himself. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Robert Courtney was offered a plea deal. Instead of facing life in prison, he would serve between 17 and a half and 30 years. In exchange, he had to give a complete, detailed statement of every single drug he remembered tampering with from the very beginning. Now, you might be wondering why Courtney wasn't charged with murder. It turns out that's pretty difficult to prove in court. How can you uh, say that the diluted medication caused the death of someone who's already in the throes of a death-causing disease. It's all a question of, of causation. And so the debriefing interviews with Robert Courtney began. And that's where Melissa Osborne comes in again. Due to her background in pharmacy, she was tasked with figuring out all the details of which medications he had tampered with and exactly how he did it. And this meant at times spending eight hours a day in a room with him. And so the very first thing, when we go in the very first meeting, uh, he's sitting down there and he's sitting in his little orange jumpsuit and uh, Gene Porter tells him that there's only one requirement and that was for him to tell the truth. And then I would take the list of all the different medications and I would go over, did, he, did you mix this med improperly ever? And if he said yes, I would say, can you remember the first time that you did it? And he'd say yes or no. And then I would ask him, do you remember the last time? And in many cases, it was like right before you all showed up. Melissa asked him if he ever used zero medications in the IV bags. And he said, yes. She was disturbed by the lack of emotion he displayed during these conversations. But there was like a time that he got emotional about diluting a medication, and we asked him why, and he said because it was for a friend of his. He said, oh, I just feel really bad that I did it because he was a friend of mine. He was a nice guy. And I'm like, oh, my God, do you really see what you're saying? There's one time that I can't even remember the medicine, and I wish I could, that I asked him, did he remember the last time he diluted it? And he goes, yeah, I do. And I, I thought that was odd. And I was like, oh, really? He says, yeah, it was for the wife of a friend of mine. He said it like that. He didn't get emotional. He said it like that. Of course, I could see his attorneys, and they turned every shade of gray you could ever see. He's just sitting there like he's talking about what we're going to have for lunch that day. According to Melissa, most of the time, Robert Courtney answered her questions with a very matter-of-fact temperament. There was one time she can remember that he got upset with her. His mother had died of cancer a few years before, and I asked him if he tampered with her medications. He got mad over that. Well, I was like, well, I had to ask. And what I wanted to say was, well, you did it for the mother of other people, but he didn't like that. No, he didn't do anything to her medicine. Even for Robert Courtney, there was a line. And apparently that line was his own mother. It also tells me, no matter how much justifying he did, he knew he was causing harm because he couldn't bring himself to harm his own mother. Remember in episode one, we talked about adriamycin, the chemo drug that's bright Kool-Aid red, the red devil. Leanne Dillman was administered adriamycin and she hoped that her meds were not involved with the dilution. But that wasn't the case. During the interview with the FBI, Courtney confirmed that he diluted adriamycin, as well as other drugs that have a tint or a color to them. Melissa asked him if he ever added any kind of coloring agent to those IV bags. And then he goes, oh, no, that would be dangerous. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, okay. He says, I just knew that I'd have to put so much that there would be some sort of color in it. During this time, Melissa couldn't help but think back to her roommate and friend who had passed away from cancer 
1996. I, I know that if I had found out if it was my roommate was one of the victims, I don't think I would have been nearly as gracious as the people that I, I dealt with. They were very gracious. They really were. And um, my heart breaks for them every single day. I, uh, I think about it a lot. But when Melissa walked into that room to interview Robert Courtney, she had to conceal how she really felt. How did you, like, think about your... Uh, composure or how you were acting and communicating with him during that time because I can imagine that would probably be sort of complicated. I can't even tell you how many times I just wanted to punch him right in the face because I'm like, look what you did. You took the same pharmacist oath that I took. Okay? And that's to protect people. But really, and my role was kind of odd. Okay? Because his attorney told him that I was a pharmacist, okay? So he kind of would, like, make pharmacy jokes to me, like, talking, like, pharmacy lingo to me and, like, trying to bond with me. And I had to bring that out in him. So I had to pretend to be friendly and open and accepting, and that was hard. It made me feel sick to my stomach. It was some of the hardest work that I'd ever done, and it was all just emotional work and, and, and psychological and, and mental. It was just so much to take to hear somebody say these things and not have any remorse. Through that work, Melissa and others began to piece the story together, creating a master list of every single prescription that Robert Courtney ever diluted. And because of that, because of the hours upon hours that Melissa spent in that room talking with Robert Courtney, now we know how it happened. And we know how it all began. It's a story that's both utterly foreign and horrifying, but also, in a weird way, kind of relatable. You know, it started out just one time, and you don't get caught, so you do it again. And you do it again and you don't get caught, but you think you're going to stop. And then it's just, you're so greedy and you just like that and you just can't stop. It began with pills. Courtney said that he started filling prescriptions that called for 30 pills with only 25 pills. If anyone noticed, he reasoned, he'd just claim it was a mistake and add the missing pills. But no one noticed. Then he thought, well, if no one noticed the missing pills, then maybe no one would notice a diluted intravenous bag, especially for a patient who is dealing with a cancer recurrence. And he first started diluting the drugs for people who were getting a dose right towards the end of their life. And I'm sure in his mind, he justified it, thinking, well, this is just the pharmaceutical company making some money on somebody who's going to die. This is Mike Ketchmark. He represented about 200 people in a civil lawsuit brought against Robert Courtney that went to trial in October of 2002. By reviewing the medical records of all of his clients, Ketchmark said he could actually see how Courtney began diluting the medication for the sickest patients and how it grew from there. And what was surprising to me was the level of justification that, that he brought about with his conduct. And I think it got to the point where he started believing and actually internalizing and believing that chemo, this type of chemotherapy for stage four, certain types of stage four cancer doesn't work anyway. And the pharmaceutical companies are making money on it. Why shouldn't I? But then as he fell deeper and deeper down into this hole, he started diluting every kind of any, any type of medication where he would compound it, where he would take it and be able to dilute it, he would do that. And I think the most shocking thing to me is just how easy it was for him to accomplish that. I'm going to assume that you don't know what it's like to withhold life-saving medication from someone, or at least I would hope not. But maybe you can relate to how easy it is to do one, just one thing that you know is wrong. And then to justify it. And then how easy it is once you've justified it to do it one more time. And then, well, the 
the ball is rolling. And with every roll, it gets faster, builds momentum. And suddenly, it feels harder to stop than it does to keep going. One of the things Courtney told the FBI is that he thought that someone, a doctor, a patient, someone would eventually say something to him, perhaps complain that the medication didn't seem to be working. He told himself, as soon as someone complains, that's when I'll know to stop. But no one ever did. Well, not to him directly. And so he kept diluting more and more and then more. But then, as he fell deeper and deeper down into this hole, he started diluting every kind of, any, any type of medication where he would compound it, where he would take it and be able to dilute it. He would do that. And I think the most shocking thing to me is just how easy it was for him to accomplish that. Eventually, Robert Courtney confessed that he first started diluting in 1988, which means he was diluting medications for 13 years before he was finally caught. Every single day he went to work, he made a conscious decision to dilute chemotherapy drugs for money, even though he didn't need the money, even though he wasn't spending the money, even though he was just accumulating the money in a bank account. Anybody who becomes a career criminal or becomes a serial murderer or becomes um, a pharmacist who's diluting drugs, they, they don't do that overnight. And it's the small steps. I used to tell people, and I certainly tell my uh, adult children now who were just babies at the time this happened, is that I really truly believe that the path to hell leads one step at a time. Perhaps Robert Courtney started doing this for the money. But I don't think that's why he kept doing it. I asked Melissa Osborne if he ever told her why he did it. He said mainly greed. And he did. He said, I did it mainly for money, for greed. But he says, but it doesn't make any sense that I would dilute something that costs $5. And sometimes I did. So I think there's more to it. I mean, because he enjoyed, he would go, he would make these IVs some of them not even having the medication in it. And he would go into the infusion room, sit down and have a conversation with these individuals while they're receiving the IV, knowing that there's no medication in it. Imagine, imagine, you know, but this, it was exhausting and emotional and he enjoyed it though. He really did. I think he liked just talking to us, you know? He never seemed embarrassed or really sorry for anything he did. In February of 2002, Robert Courtney officially pleaded guilty at a plea hearing. The hearing was public and the seats were filled with family and friends of Courtney and the victims. This was six months after he was arrested, and many people in Kansas City still believed that he was innocent. The perception was that we had this wrong, that we were railroading a good man. Why in the world have you all done this? You have ruined this man's personal life and his career. You all have it wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. He's so well-respected. You know, uh, he's an entrepreneur. Part of the plea agreement was that Courtney had to stand up in court and admit that he did the things he was being accused of. So there was a lot of people there, people from his church, his family, patients, maybe doctors, just the communities there. Okay, all of us, we knew, but they didn't. But at that point... He said he did it. And let me tell you, we're sitting in there, and and there was an audible exhalation of air from the gallery. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
Uh, my mom was my hero. But my mom really, what she did for me during a very difficult time of my life, many years, was she loved me and she prayed for me and um, she believed the best about me. This is Clay Withers. He's a pastor and life coach in Kansas City. Clay referenced Leave It to Beaver when describing his childhood in Raytown, Missouri, a suburb of Kansas City. But in the year 2000, his father unexpectedly passed away. And then a year later, his mother, Patricia, went to the doctor and they found a tumor. In January of 2001, she had surgery to remove the tumor, which they discovered was malignant. At the end of that surgery, her surgeon came out. Uh, We knew him pretty well as a family. He felt very confident with some radiation treatments and subsequent uh, chemotherapy treatments. They'd be able to get all of that cancer under control. And so we, you know, as serious as that surgery was, uh, her doctor and all of us very confident moving forward that she was going to do just great. Patricia was 70 years old at the time, but Clay said she was the picture of health and her prognosis was good. My mom was a fighter. She was very strong. And uh, so we had every confidence in the world that she was going to beat it or at least live a lot longer. Patricia's oncologist was Dr. Verda Hunter, and her chemotherapy meds came from the Research Medical Tower Pharmacy. And my mom was, um, she was uh, always dressed to the nines. Probably her crowning glory was her hair. And I mean, she was so um, particular about her hairstyle and her hairdo. And I mean, no hair out of place anytime. And uh, so my mom, when she started her treatment, the worst news ever was discovering that chemotherapy most likely she would lose her hair. Um, She went for weeks and weeks and weeks and never lost a hair on her head. And my mom, she she really did not experience nausea or fatigue. My mom was so very proud of herself. She thought, oh my gosh, I'm beating this thing at the very beginning. And... uh, you know, then then the news came that she wasn't. Patricia Withers was one of the patients who was in the middle of her chemotherapy treatment when the news came out about Robert Courtney. She was sent to the hospital at Research Medical Center to receive her chemotherapy after that. The hospital did not use Robert Courtney to mix their chemotherapy IVs. And after her very first infusion at the hospital, she noticed a big difference. It was not even uh, midday of the following day that my mom's hair began to fall out immediately. And she began immediately feeling nauseous and experiencing all of the usual side effects that accompany chemotherapy treatments, and she never had before. It was clear that Patricia had not been given the correct dosage up until that moment. But it was too late. The cancer had advanced too far. Patricia Withers passed away in November of 2001. One thing that I always was troubled by in this case is the vast majority of the drugs that he was really diluting a lot were drugs that were primarily for women. It was um, drugs that were treating breast cancer and ovarian cancer and cervical cancer. And I... I always wondered, was it because he was targeting that, or was that just his opportunity? This is Mike Ketchmark again. Patricia was one of the many victims who was included in the civil lawsuit that Ketchmark brought against Courtney in 2002. I would say 80, 90% of our our clients were women in all age ranges. I mean, we we had clients who were um, in their 80s who had this happen to. We've had um, you know, a young mother who was 25 years old who um, diagnosed with 
early stage cervical cancer or, or, or breast cancer that if properly treated would have gone on to live a normal life. But because of the dilution, these folks lost their life. I personally couldn't find any evidence that Robert Courtney was targeting women. My understanding is that he took advantage of any opportunity to dilute any drugs to make a profit. It just so happens that many of the people who received the diluted medications were being treated for ovarian cancer and breast cancer. But there are a couple of people who told me they wouldn't be surprised if there was a misogynistic aspect to this. Of course, that's just conjecture. But it reminds me of this other piece of information about Robert Courtney. I told you in episode one about his marriage to his first wife, Gwyneth, and then later to Laura. But actually, he was married very briefly in between the two. Three months after he divorced Quinness, he married someone else who I'm not going to name. That marriage, well, it did not last long. This is reporter Rick Montgomery. His second wife would later tell uh, reporters that he demanded that she wear, uh, not wear casual clothes, not even around the house. It's kind of a Donna Reed type uh, marriage, and that's and that she would have to buy a, a better car if she was married to him, and and she started looking for a, a better house, and and she just, I mean, after two weeks of that, <laughs> she uh, she had had enough, and they annulled the marriage. Courtney's second wife spoke with the New York Times for an article in 2003, but requested they not use her name. She is quoted as saying, He wanted my hair, my clothes, my nails to be perfect, like a doll on a shelf. She wore a size 3 dress at the time and said that Courtney told her not to gain any weight. He also told her to get rid of her Pontiac Fiero, saying, quote, As long as you are married to me, you'll drive a BMW, end quote. At the same time, she said he worried about money. And only a few days after the marriage, he told her she needed to go get a job. She also claimed that he was physically abusive to one of his daughters. I wasn't able to get in contact with Robert Courtney's second wife, or any of his ex-wives for that matter. But I did speak with Jenna Owens, an associate professor in the Criminal Justice and Criminology Department at UMKC. She specializes in victimization. He divorced his first wife, um, left her with something, moved on to a, a attractive woman, wined and dined her very quickly, rapid engagement, and then she immediately recognized what would be the telltale signs of, um, you know, controlling and domestic violence, whether or not that actually is physical violence or it sounded more like it was emotional, but it did say that he had struck his daughter. Jenna Owens said that studies of male serial killers show that the second most common motivation is power and control. Money is also up there. And although Courtney is technically not a serial killer because, as we covered, it's very difficult to prove that he murdered anyone, Owens said she sees a theme of power and control in his actions. It wasn't just these expensive chemotherapy drugs, but it was sometimes, you know, a $5 prescription, which suggests it wasn't, the primary motivation was not financial. Yes, there was a financial component, but it suggested that underneath all of that was this need to control, to to play God, whether or not that's in someone's household as the head of household and a subservient or um, submissive partner, or whether that's in the context of a physician who's giving out potentially life-saving drugs and then knowing what you've done, knowing you're withholding that, knowing that you were, you're able to control um, the potential for someone having more time on this earth. Um, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's got to be sort of a powerful feeling for those who are uh, sick and twisted. Um, I've wondered, was it just like a compulsive thing? Like he just was obsessed with making money. He grew up very poor. His father was a traveling uh, preacher, kind of like a tent evangelist. And they they had very little money. Um, and so, you know, I wondered about that. Like, was he determined to, like, have money and become really wealthy because of his childhood? Or, or maybe, or was it the God complex thing? Was it not even totally about the money? Was it this need to play God? Do you have any thoughts about that? 
It very well likely could be a bit of both. I mean, the financial component adds power and control, right? So that prestige, I mean, he seemed to present himself in a very polished manner, even when he didn't have to, you know, the presentation was important. The presentation of his wife was important, his household, his car. Um, and even though you could hypothetically have more money than you can spend, he also seemed to be kind of worried about it constantly. Um, so they need to amass more and they need to have more um, adds another sort of layer of that to it. And then I, I can imagine growing up poor makes you do want to save money, but a lot of the things he was doing in terms of his spending suggested that was not the way he was going to achieve that. There was always some new expense, something Courtney needed money for. His cars, his divorce settlement payment to Quiness, the purchase of his house a few years later. And then there was the $1 million pledge that he made to Northland Cathedral in 1999, and then the $500,000 tax bill that came the next year. During his debriefing with the FBI, Courtney said, quote, If I wanted to make 10% more or 20% more, then basically all the drugs I was mixing would have to fit those percentage numbers. End quote. In the end, investigators determined that Robert Courtney diluted 72 different medications over 13 years. The prescriptions came from 400 different doctors across Kansas City and affected 4,200 patients. The total number of prescriptions he diluted was 98,000. 98,000. He did this 98,000 times. Most of the drugs were to combat cancer, but there were also drugs for multiple sclerosis, AIDS, blood pressure, for people receiving transplants, and fertility drugs. shocking to think that someone could dilute life-saving medications for 13 years before being caught. But what's even more shocking is how close he came to getting away with it. A sentencing hearing was set for December 2002. Robert Courtney would have to face his victims, as well as prison time. But before that, over 200 lawsuits were filed against him. Only one would go to trial next time on The Opportunist. I will say this, just as a, as a lawyer and a random guy who exists in the world, the easiest criminality um, to witness is when you have sufficiently othered um, your victims. Sentencing isn't the end. It, it never is. Even though it seems like it should be, we all knew there was going to be an appeal. Uh, we all knew there would be multiple appeals. Uh, we still had a lot of work left to do. Families across Kansas City are stunned that Robert Courtney is being released from prison and allowed home confinement. Be sure to rate and review The Opportunist on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps the show. Also, you can always email us at theopportunist at castmedia.com. That's cast with a K theopportunist at castmedia.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this season, as well as any ideas you have for future opportunists. Opportunist is produced by Kate Mays, Amanda Elliott, and me, Hannah Smith. It is written by Amanda Elliott and me. Keisha Eaton is our researcher. Colin Thompson is our music supervisor and music editor. Austin Olivia Kendrick is our audio editor. The show is mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. John Savak and Colin Thompson are our executive producers. 
Our podcast art for season two is by Arvin Lee. The ending credit song is I Waited by the Chapel Door by Andrea Litke and Irvin Litke. Our main theme song is by Chalate. Special thanks to James Kirkpatrick Davis, Ashley Mattingly, and Kristen Thurmond. The Opportunist is a cast original podcast. I waited in despair. I stepped within the chapel door. It is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.